City University Television presents... The American Theatre Wing Seminars. Working in the theatre. This seminar, play script, director. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing Seminars on Working in the Theatre. These are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. I'm Isabel Stevenson. I'm president of the wing, and I am very pleased to be able to welcome you here to these seminars, which tend to give you a behind-the-scenes look of what it is to work in the theater. We are an organization that has gone on for many, many years serving the community through the theaters. We are founders of the Tony Awards, and we are indeed proud of that. But we are much more than just the Tony Awards. We work year-round to serve the community through the theaters. We have a hospital program that brings young people and people from the theater, from the cabarets, to the hospitals so that those who cannot go to the theater get to see theater. We have a program called Introduction to Broadway, which has brought some 70,000 young high school students to the Broadway theater. These are students from the high schools of the five boroughs of New York City, and we work along with the Education Department of New York City. We have a new program called Theater in Schools, and that brings into the classrooms, those that work in the theater, to discuss what it is to work in the theater. From press agents to poster artists to every facet of the theater, so that these young people in the theater will know the whole of the theater. These seminars came out of the Wing School. There was a program that the government had started during Second World War, and uh, it was for returning vets to be able to relearn their craft. And out of that come these seminars so that we give you a behind-the-scenes look of the, every facet of working in the theater. I hope you will enjoy today's program, which is on the playwright, director, and lyricist. And I would like now to introduce to you the panel. I will have to go from, I can't go from left to right, I'm just going to go as we see it. Douglas Carter Bean as Bees and Honey Drown, Mark Broker, How I Learned to Drive, and Bill Russell, Sideshow, and Paula Vogel, How I Learned to Drive. And our esteemed co-moderators, George White, who is president of the O'Neill Foundation and a director, and Brendan Gill, who is a member of the board of directors of the American Theatre Wing, and esteemed as he is, not only for New Yorker, but as a good citizen around town. 
Will you please now take over quickly? Thank you for being here. Well, I'm going to start by uh, asking Paula, since uh, you indicated that this is going to be dramaturgical mud wrestling today, <laughs> uh, let's start it. Uh, so, actually, what I'd like to do is uh, have you tell us <coughs> about your background and how you got started and why, when you first started having these uh, strange feelings of writing plays. <laughs> of writing plays, okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, your background and that. Yeah. Um, well, at the time that I started writing plays, um, it really didn't, it wasn't very possible to be a woman playwright at the end of the 60s. There weren't very many women playwrights. And uh, the reason that I started writing was because I really, really am terrible as an actress. At that point in time, if you fell in love with the theater, you were supposed to act. And um, I, I'm really bad. Um, and I kept trying and trying and trying, and uh, out of despair, it was equally difficult to be a woman director uh, at the end of the 60s. Um, and I then just thought, well, I'll start trying to write. But for me, and I'm going to toss this out here, I had an older brother who died 10 years ago from AIDS who was quite brilliant, was, a, uh, was supposed to be the writer in the family wrote novels, wrote poetry. And you know how in a family, as siblings, you never do what an older sibling is doing. Um, and I started thinking about theater as not a, as literary a form as the novel or as the poem. And I started telling myself that playwriting was actually not writing. That it was all right to write a play because basically I was writing the script but that actors and directors would actually be writing the production. So I wasn't really a writer. I was, I was writing a scenario. I was writing a structure. I was writing an excuse for us all to get together in the room. And therefore, it would be permissible for me to write plays, whereas it would not be permissible for me to compete with my older brother in the writing of novels. Wonderful. That's extraordinary. And, and it, in, in some sense, of course, it's always been true that the, the, the degree to which a play is, as they say, not written but, but rewritten. And of course, even Shakespeare was gathered around and they, were in, and they were interpolating and trying this and trying that, depending on the actors who were going right, to be present. Right. And something emerged from all that. But it's thrilling to think that, that, that you were avoiding so much in order to go right to a target that worked perfectly. <laughs> what well, a good way to aim it. I don't know if it works perfectly. I, I think that well, one of the things... Does. I think that one... Well, my yeah. play is my 22nd play. Mm -hmm. And I've been writing since age 18. And I'm about to turn 46. Now, this is very much the trajectory, I think, for a woman playwright. Uh, and one of the things that I've been dedicating uh, the last... 12 years of my life is to make sure that it's a shorter traje trajectory for my women playwriting students than it has been for me. Um, the other thing that now actually I am disturbed about, uh, the very reason that I thought, well, I can enter theater because it's not the novel, I can do theater because it's not a poem, is that we need to start elevating and respecting our own critical discourse uh, as we talk about plays. One of the things that uh, was very disturbing a couple of years ago, I don't know if people read this, was a, an article by Paul Berman saying that um, movies were really where serious people went to see the issues of our time and that nothing in theater approached the truth of a movie. And when you stop and think about it, we have a brain drain right now where the serious discourse is going to film. And one of the things that I would like to see is to stop that brain drain, to take ourselves seriously, to say that writing a play is as high a literary form as writing uh, a film. 
What is the product that he's talking like, about yeah. compared to, it, it may be brilliant young people are going to write screenplays instead of plays, but the product doesn't demonstrate yeah. that. But here's the irony right now, can we talk about this at City University of New York or NYU or wherever you're from? <laughs> Colleagues, academics will give more respect in deconstructing Attack of the Killer Tomatoes than they will Three Tall Women, for example. Mm -hmm. There yeah. is a bias among intellectuals against theater. I, I really think Maybe this that's because they don't go to it. I think that that may be it. I do think that that may be it. But it's, it's a really serious concern right now that young writers are saying, well, I'll go and write a video. I'll do a video instead of I'll write a play. Um, and, and that's something that really is alarming to me. Now, you're doing, uh, you're actually doing both. How do you feel I about that? I do it that? all. <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. So how do you feel about that as a um, either or? Well, why, I mean, the fact remains why do I why do I choose to write theater when certainly I can write a movie and make so much more money and have a n really nice house and have really super sexy friends with really great names See, already um, I like it better I love it it's my life the, the, the thing about film writing and I've done I've done it about six times now and uh, gearing towards seventh um, <laughs> thing about film writing is that there are thousands of people who live in Los Angeles County and their job is to save your writing. <laughs> it is their job to make it better, to make it palatable, to make in it quotes, less better. special. Oh, well, it's, I would say italicized. <laughs> um, that's their job. And I have meetings and meetings and meetings where people will tell me how to make it less unique. So when I hear things like the intellectual, you know, that's where our focus is, is in movies. I, even in something like independent films, which I feel off-Broadway has become is the equivalent of independent films, even in something like independent films, which is really the movies anyone with a thought in their head would go see, um, there are meetings where people will say, cut that. There, there is something uh, which they do, which I had done for my first film, uh, you finally get through all that garbage, all the people saying, cut this, no one will like that, no one will get that. Um, you finally get the screening, uh, the sneak preview screening, and there are cards. Do you like the title? Do you like the ending? And these cards can say, we don't like the ending, and they will go and reshoot a new ending to the movie. This is unbelievable. This is the idea we don't do this in the theater. No, really, we don't. Um, if people feel a little let down by the ending of the play, that's okay. I want them to be a little let down. Um, it is about an artist, a creative person, telling you the life they've lived, this is what I've come back with. This is what I've come with, folks. It's not about, this is how we've cleaned it up and made it palatable and made money off of it. But I, I don't know how y your experience is uh, as well in terms of, of musical theater, but I actually think that the movie system of production is rubbing off on the stage right now. I've not only experienced my own horror stories, but I hear horror stories in which a playwright actually is told by many people, and believe me, I'm very pro-dramaturg, but that the play needs to be fixed is an attitude that's increasing, I think, right now in our process of putting on plays, very much coming from yeah. from film. Is that is that, is so that something uh, yeah, that you've experienced? 
Uh, well, to an extent, because a musical is a collaborative art. Right. Uh, right. Theater is by its nature, but a musical especially is, I think. And of course you get input from everywhere, but it's interesting to me that you say that the intellectual bent is to favor film, because I feel the opposite in a sense. I, I don't have a lot of interest in working for film, for, uh, or writing for film, for exactly the reasons you were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel that in the theater, you don't make as much money, but you get more respect um, as a writer. I, I don't think film writers very rarely do get respect mm -hmm. of the kind that a playwright will. Um, for a hit show, you know. Right. Certainly right. not a screenwriter. I mean, a screenwriter exactly. is a joke in Hollywood. <laughs> right. well, to, to say you're a screenwriter yeah. is just write yeah. about studio wife. But I know that. <laughs> <laughs> studio executive's <laughs> wife. And then, like, you know, <laughs> studio executive's prostitute. Right, right. It's, there's, a, there's, a great, there's a great quote by David Mamet saying that when we say in the theater, let's collaborate, we mean let's collaborate. <clears throat> when they say in Hollywood, let's collaborate, they, they mean bend over. Actually, David Mamet is one of the few people who, who's been able to do uh, the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, yeah. was a wonderful movie right. as well as a wonderful well, play. I mean, this is what I'm trying to do now, is to make that bridge of to do the theater yes. uh -huh. and then make the movie from the play. I, am, I don't know if I'm going to get to do it as much on the first one, but certainly in the next couple, plays to really keep the same directors, same actors, and really keep that kind of going through. And it just strikes me as the only logical thing to do. Mark, mm -hmm. um, where do you, uh, how do you feel about this? And, and as a, you know, a director, and have you done film too? No, I haven't. Do you want to? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't mind having that, uh, having a nice apartment also. It's <laughs> um, a lovely apartment. That's <laughs> good. Uh, but um, I think, you know, the for a director, it's much harder. For an actor and a writer, I think the crossover is much easier um, and much more expected. And I think uh, as a director, I have a lot of friends who uh, have started to direct in television, especially some of the things that are shooting in town, um, which is a little easier to get involved in that way. But in terms of what shoots in California or a feature film, you really have to stop and go out there and basically start over again because it's a technological field. Sure. Um, and it, the, the crossover in terms of working with the actor is not necessarily the most important aspect of the work. Well, you know, we were also talking about the collaborative process, and in the theater, and I'd love to get into this more, um, where you're not one step above, the, the writer is not one step above studio wife, which is a great moment when you said that. Um, but, I mean, you, you really do become a collaborator directly with the playwright, and I wanted to know how you guys worked on all of this. It would be fun. Just uh, tell us about the process that you go through. Can I just interject that sure. Mark also directed my play? I'm just saying. <laughs> it wasn't on the teleprompter. It happened. <laughs> How did you interrelate with both of them, as I was saying? Um, well, I hope. Uh, um, well, you know, the thing, the thing that I love about the theater is that, uh, and I think what makes it special, is that the writer is always right. I think that there is an irreconcilable difference um, between us or between anyone else and the writer, the wonderful thing about the theater is that the writer wins, and they have to win, because it's about language. It's about language and people. Um, and so the writer um, knows best, ultimately. Um, there was an instance with Paul and I where there was a section of the play where I was adamant that it should, the little portion that should go, and I'm sure there was with Doug also. Um, but one, one place with Paul in particular, and I pushed and pushed and pushed, which is my job to push and push and push, because I believe strongly about it, but yet she said at the end, you know, ultimately, no. She drew the line and said, this will not go. And that's when you have to say, you know, it's, it's your work. 
Um, and she was absolutely right. Um, you know, it became uh, a very celebrated part of the play, ultimately. Um, and we won't say what it was. So we won't know how stupid I am. Um, but, uh, but I think that's really what's, what's wonderful about it. And that's how it's different, I think, from film. Because for film, it's uh, about image. The visual is first, um, which is the challenge of that. And which why the word is changed so often and ultimately viewed, I think, as not being as important or as crucial. But in the theater, it, it has to start with the word. And the visual is in support or juxtaposed next to that. But I think it's a two-way street, too, yeah. for playwrights. Absolutely. And I bet you're going to say the same thing, which yeah. is, I took you into the writing process. Mm -hmm. And there are things in that play that aren't on the stage. Because you said, this is my vision. And in essence, I mean, you know, you get tired of your own voice in your head. You want to see somebody else's idea. And when you said, this is how I want to do the play, it's the playwright's job, I think, to say, what is the chemistry? And, and I have to lose these battles because the director is right. And I, I need to see your vision. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I bet you had the same thing when you went, all right, let's try, try it his way. Let's did go with you, that. Did you Always. choose Mark or did he choose you? I chose Mark. Now, that is the nice thing about theater. Yeah. You do choose the director. Yeah, and I, I chose him as well. Yeah. So. Why? Did, you, did, well, he's did Mark blonde, explain he's tall, to you? Thank you. Oh, good. Now, look. The famous Mark the Brush. Blush. The blush. The blush. The famous Mark It wasn't a good. It happened. wasn't a good day unless I got him to blush. That yeah. was my rule. Yep, me too. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, because because he, I mean, why do you anyone choose a director? You meet with them, you talk about it, and then you just it. It is a very. You become very trusting quickly. You yes. have to trust quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And with Mark, there are many things. There was a speech about Mae West. That thing was in so many. I was determined to get this monologue about Mae West and how she was created by drag queens and then drag queens ended up doing her and how she was an important link to society. Well, in what play was this? This was in Asbees. Right, and we would it. put it in every, uh, we'd put it everywhere and everyone are going, Mae West, it's got to go there. <laughs> and finally, he was just like, just cut it. Just yeah. cut Mae West. Yeah. And I was like, oh, I can't, I can't. And you just trust them and you do it. And all the actors, oh, that was my favorite part was the Mae West part. Is well, it it's kind of, it's totally a great play. And the Mae West stuff, I, I, now I look at it and go, what was I thinking? It has nothing to do with this play I was writing. But Mark, you listen, you trust, you let, you have to let go. You have to know the basic story, the basic truth is there. And the little fussy things, that's for the director to get rid of. And you just trust them. The reason the I ask that question, who chooses who, the major you blush, that, is that, that we've heard on, on the seminar that uh, from time to time, a playwright will audition the director and prospective director and say, tell me mm -hmm. what the play is about. Well, I, I auditioned Mark. He had to bring an up number and a ballad. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, and a monologue. For, uh, <laughs> is there anything legally in the equity contracts about uh, the author having the absolute right yes. to it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's Drama Skilled yeah. Rules. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Drama Skilled. Gotta love that. Yeah. Right. That's one of the all-time great things, the Drama Skilled. That's not the case in terms of the playwright choosing the director or the book writer in musicals, is yeah, it? Right. right. Well, right. in the case of Sideshow, uh, the impetus for the show came from the director. Mm -hmm. um, and he and I have been great friends for 20 years. We've done another project together, Pageant, um, uh, which again, we started on together from day one. So in a sense, uh, Robert Longbottom is also an author of, of the piece. The three of us, Henry Krieger, the composer, and Robert, and myself, um, worked on Sideshow for five and a half years together, and he was very much a part five of the Five and a half years? Five and a half years yeah. from... Where did that take place? 
Oh, uh, <laughs> all over, primarily in uh, Henry's apartment because he has the piano, so that's where we, <laughs> where we wrote a lot of the songs. Mm -hmm. But we met um, everywhere. We'd, we'd go away. Uh, friends would give us their houses in the country. Nice. We'd, we'd work there. Did you uh, work on other things in the meantime? Oh, yeah. You, you yeah, we, we back all worked. But, mm -hmm. uh, but really, for five and a half years, our primary focus was Sideshow, even though we were doing other things also. And he was very much involved from, from the beginning. Um, he had seen a movie that the Hilton sisters had made in the 50s called Change for Life. It's one of the worst <laughs> movies ever, ever made. And in 1985, he said to me, I saw this terrible film, and I think we should write a musical about these Siamese twins. And I said, great. Uh, you know, Siamese twins <laughs> sounded so theatrical to me, just mm -hmm. inherently. The idea of two actors moving together and singing together was really intriguing. We didn't actually start it then until 1992, but the idea had been planted there. And with a musical, of course, um, Bobby has a great vision of, of how to do a number, of what a number should be. And so in terms of the production numbers, a lot of that came from him. And we would write into his idea of what it should be. And we would place those, you know, we rewrote and rewrote. We have mountains of songs that we replaced over the the process. But in the collaboration area, I find, especially with musicals, we, we all have strong opinions and we're not afraid to state them, but we do have a lot of respect for each other and I, I feel ultimately that the best idea does prevail. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a mistake to get too invested personally in any one idea. Uh, one example I would use, there was this lyric in a song that we went round and round about it. it. Had been written one way, and then some of the characterization changed. So I changed the lyric, and Bobby and Henry and our musical director David Chase were very attached to the old lyric, which I didn't think was right for the new circumstance where this song came. And we went back and forth, and I would try to write other lyrics and and alternatives. And I have journal entries that go on for pages about this song and 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 this lyric. And then we ended up cutting it, you know? <laughs> so it was all for naught anyway, really. Well, if, you know, the, there's the old question, what, what does come first, the lyric or the music? Well, it varies with different writers. In our case, primarily we work from the lyric first. I don't necessarily write a whole song, but I will write a verse and a chorus, uh, and then we will go from there. And Henry is quite amazing to me. I, I still am just in awe of him because I will give him a, a written lyric. He will put it on the piano. He doesn't even read it for the most part. He just starts playing. And I would say 75% of the time, it's the music we end up with. Now, sometimes we've discussed we want a certain feel for it or we know where it's coming in the story. But it, he, he channels mm. it somehow, I swear. Yeah. It's, uh, it's remarkable. But that question does sort of work both ways because even though I write, say, a chorus or a verse to a song, we then, when we develop the song, I have to write lyrics that match the music that then exists for that stanza or that pattern that we've created. And so, then also, uh, do you have to think of who will be singing? That definitely mm -hmm. does come into mm -hmm. it at a certain point. That uh, on it, at, at a certain point, not then, because not everyone would fit in with your concept. Right. Well, we usually are writing for a character, but we don't always know what actor will play that character, what their vocal range is, what key it should be in, for instance. Uh, and we 
do end up fine-tuning these things in rehearsals and, and readings because different actors have different vocal qualities that you want to try to accentuate, to give them the best shot and to make your song land best in their vocal range. Isn't your show uh, exceptionally uh, sustained, recitative, and song? Yes, it's uh, it was all a, quite extraordinary. You think you could begin like that, and and I thought it was a quasi-professional warning. How long can they go on like this, <laughs> imparting all this information and keeping it all in a, in a musical framework like that? It was that, that was it just went on and on. It was perfectly wonderful. Yeah, it, it, that was a difficult issue for us because at our very first meeting we decided that we wanted it to be primarily sung. And um, my suggestion was that we, we had the general parameters of the Hilton sisters' true story, and I suggested, because Henry and I hadn't written together before, that we just start musicalizing moments that sang to us. And uh, then we had all these songs and trying to connect them with plot points, and I just, I can't do this, it, it can't possibly be all sung. So we, we would go back and forth, and then we eventually got it to a point where it did every, I think, syllable was sung, and the musical director came in and said, it's too much singing. You've got to, you know, I think it should be spoken occasionally. It just gives your ear a rest from all the relentless music. And uh, so we've arrived at sort of a balance where it's, it's sung a lot. There are, there is more spoken dialogue than most people think. They come out and they say, every word of that was sung, and it's not really true. Mm -hmm. every, almost every moment is underscored. There's continual music, but... It's very interesting, because one does feel that way. Yeah. But it's almost like an operetta. Yes, right. But his and music has great energy. Incredible. And he does not take a, he does not take a melody and recycle it, as some uh, composers do with uh, inter-recit that just repeats and repeats the melody that you've heard in the song. Mm -hmm. uh, he always tries something new, tries to give each lyric line uh, that's not a song, but recit, uh, an idiosyncrasy that feels right for that moment. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, pick up also on uh, Paul and Doug about how we brought, how you brought Mark into the process, and how the how because we talked from Bill about five and a half years development, and play doesn't take that long. I well, it maybe does in your head, but <laughs> in terms of the evolution, want to talk a little bit about um, both your point and then where Mark. Yeah, where 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 Mark came in. Um, how how did you do it, Mark? Um, I'd written the first draft of the play. I mean, talk about how long does it take to write a play. I lived with the idea of Alexa for about six years. I sat down and wrote the Why? Because I was just, I, because <laughs> I would, I had written a play. I had written three plays, actually. They had been produced, and I was, that was great. And that was my life, and I never wanted to do movies. And then I was really, really broke, because none of the plays were particular successes. Um, so I wrote a screenplay. Uh, the screenplay was... Uh, How did you learn to write a play? A, a, a screenplay or a play? A play. A play I learned to write. Um, I really... College and I didn't uh, gel. Um, <laughs> so I came to New York as soon as I could. I got a job. From where? I know, it's set from why I'm missing Pennsylvania. <laughs> Hold for applause. So the... Um, <laughs> that will never come. Everyone here likes Philadelphia. <laughs> I love Philadelphia. Philadelphia is... I was there this okay. weekend. So, um, I was... Uh, I came on a bus, Bieber bus, came to New York. I worked in the theater any way that I could. I was a, a bartender. 
I was a headset representative. I was a doorman. I was the elevator operator. And my, that was in the evenings. And during the day, I would work at the drama bookshop and uh, as a clerk. And that way, I could read plays for free. They have a great policy because people all the time would want monologues or suggestions for plays. I could take the plays home at night, and I just had to return them and put them back on the shelf. So I'd take a play every night and read it. So that was really my education. I just read, the, and the great thing about that was is that the, if I had gone to a college where I was taught writing, someone would have pointed out the really great plays. I had to discover them myself. <laughs> you know, you have to, to get to Strange Interlude, you have to read, you know, Marco Millions. I mean, it just has to happen. Um, and that was fascinating. It was a great way for me to learn. It was my particular path. I don't recommend anyone else take it. It was 10 years before I wrote anything. Um, but that's the way I did it. And then what did you do with it? I mean, so you wrote it. Then what I wrote a play, I wrote, and I just would sit there and I just started writing. I, just I know, but then when, once it was written, then what did you do to get it out there? Um, I, had, I had an agent, and the agent yeah. sent it out. How'd you get an agent? Um, I think I met him at a cocktail party. <laughs> I go to the wrong parties. I, I think that was my first agent I met that way, and then, the, then I had my play in New York, and then people came to see it, and mm -hmm. I met with them. I mean, it's it really, I think there's a little too much mystery to theater, and I'm, I'm over it. I'm over the mystery of how thing of putting things together. I'm over the mystery of how did that play happen. There, it's you just work. You sit down. You work. You send things to people. You meet with people. You talk with them. You just. I met Mark. Um, it was set up through a, through an artistic director. He was going to do a reading up in in Maine of this play, and I met him. And literally within a half an hour. I was like, the kid's yours, bye. I was like... Well, how did you get to the reading, Mark? It was a plane, wasn't it? <laughs> to Maine? <laughs> um, I think it was plane actually, in this instance, Maine. I think it was through the artistic Maine. director at, um, at Portland Stage, where the reading was taking place, I think, actually... What had you us. been before then? I beg your pardon? What had you done before then? Um, actually, when I... Uh, I was at Actors Theatre of Louisville at that point in time, but I've been in New York. I've been in New York for ten years now, and this would have been two years ago, a year yeah. and a half ago. Yeah. Um, but I've been doing uh, a lot of new work here um, in town. I've done Linda Berry's Good Times Are Killing Me up at Second Stage, and then done a lot of regional work. Um, but I think it was actually through that artistic director yeah. that we uh, yeah. were put together. Um, <laughs> the rare things that we have here is a director who's directed, I think, three plays that are on at the same time. Right. Now. Right. Do you want just yeah. one little word about that? Because it's most unusual. I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> no, the third one actually isn't on. Um, uh, this is Our Youth uh, by Kenny Lonergan. Hopefully, uh -huh. we'll be on as soon as oh, once our place closed. Uh, no, uh, there's not uh, a theater available for it. It's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful situation. Good, good for us, it bad for Kenny. Very, um, very Mark, is yeah. it, uh, apropos of that, when it's on, uh, do you go back uh, periodically to check the play and to see that it's not getting, well, of course, they're, 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 they're bright and shining and going now, but do you tend to do this? Yeah, I had a, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Nikki Martin, who's also a director, was saying the other day, you know, the only thing better than a hit is a, f or the only thing better than a, worse than a flop is a hit, <laughs> just because uh, of all the going back. It's a constant, it's part of the joy of it, is it's like going back to see an old friend all the time, but it's nonstop. 
Um, you're either casting understudies or rehearsing um, those replacements or just going back and seeing the play. I go back every 10 days. You do? Yeah, if I can. Um, just to check in and see it and uh, give notes and then maybe have a brush up rehearsal necessary. I am. Um, I want to. Yeah, I, I want to pick up on a, a question that was asked about um, how did you choose Mark? And uh, I think something that you were saying in terms of your process being a little bit more director driven and that the concept was the director and that there's a five and a half year discussion period going on. Um, and it's something I think that you've also said that um, you have to trust very quickly in the process. Oh. Um, and I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I've never seen any of your work up until How I Learned to Drive. It's too late now. <laughs> <laughs> but it says something in terms of a skill that I think Mark has as a director, and I think it's something very necessary, which is oftentimes I do write work thinking I want to write a play for Anne Bogart and I write a particular play, or I'm writing a play now for Hal Prince because I want to return to musicals. With Mark, um, Basically, it's a small world. You check out your sources. Did you work with him? How was he? You know, did he make you cry? Um, <laughs> all that sort of thing. And the word kept coming back. He's incredible with actors. He's very respectful with playwrights. This is a really good guy. And a number of friends said that. So I, th I went, okay, great. The, the deciding factor was listening to you talk. You talked on the phone to me for an hour and a half. And you knew the play better than I knew. You had a vision of the play different from mine that was clearer than mine. Do you know what I mean? And just listening to you talk, when I hung up the phone in terms of all the other candidates, I, I called Doug and I said, my gut says Mark Brokaw. He has this ability. And I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing in collaboration. It's respect and you have to listen. You have to take in the other person's vision. And there's a focus and a concentration that I think you have in terms of playwrights that is a uh, parallel to the, your focus and concentration with actors. And that is, you, there's, there's just a stillness. I don't know if people have felt that in their collaborations. But that's when you know it's right. Mm -hmm. That's when you're saying the, the best idea prevails. Right. You know what I mean? Um, and that's when suddenly everything else sort of just floats away and you're listening to each other. Now your title is indispensable to the whole purpose of your play, the structure of your play, but did you worry at all about the fact that millions of people have seen their driving Miss Daisy? <laughs> Um, actually, uh, that's a key word. That word "drive" is right. a big word in, in the American uh, right. unconscious. I know. Um, Warner Schick started calling this "driving Miss Paula" very early on. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, read uh, the first draft. But it um, wasn't a problem. It didn't seem like a problem. I, you know, it's one of those things where you. I wrote the play in two weeks after thinking about it since age twenty, and yeah. uh, you know, it's like the mm. title's always there, yeah. and you go, "That's the way it is." And. Um, there's so many driving plays. Actually, mm -hmm. there, you, there's so many uh, car plays where you've got people sitting on stage that I thought, well, what the heck? <laughs> One more won't hurt. Titles you, are interesting. Now, you have this wonderful, yeah. wonderful title, which is just uh, so lyrical. And, and, uh, and you thought that that was going to be understood by everybody, but, but apparently it was not. No. I mean, that I... Tell us about that, because that is fun. Well, I, I had... I had seen, actually bees seen, and honey drown. I'd it's actually seen it on a, I had seen it on a sampler, uh, it, it, it's part of the, the arts and crafts movement in, around Elmira, New York, and it just was, it's, it, I thought I had to, you know, I thought it was from the Bible, it's not, but I was like, oh, it's just so beautiful, and I just love the image, and it's just really what I was feeling like in my life with regards to this, these Alexa people that I was meeting. Um, after 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 Tu Wong Fu, I would go in these meetings and I'd meet these people, and I just felt like a little bee, like just kind of like, 
oh, this is the good life. I'm dying. Help. Um, <laughs> so um, I had this, and I had this title, and I nailed it. I was like, this is it. This is this is Streetcar Named Desire. This is how good this title is. <laughs> and uh, the the, uh, the first person to call for tickets asked for tickets for. Um, uh, ass bear drowning in honey, <laughs> and the second person wanted tickets to the beekeeper's daughter. It's a Wendy. Sylvia Wendy Kesselman play. Oh, exactly. It is, it, 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 is it about absolutely. Sylvia Plath? Maybe no, it's a wonderful play. Do you think it's very quickly what you think the play is about? Because T. Cameron Smith was on our performance seminar, and she told us very quickly. Jay, what, 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 what I think the play is about? Yeah. I think the play is about everything that's wrong in America right now. <laughs> I do. I think it's it's absolutely what is wrong with the world. That 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 which is fame, uh, fame, success, um, financial reward, uh, beauty, glamour. Those are the things that are important, and it's not about art. That I think is what is wrong with America right now. And you can basically trace most. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Turning into a rally. <laughs> we'll get Jane Alexander back. We will. Um, but that's, but that's what I think the play is about, and it's why I wrote. I cannot. I, you know, as as much as people say, you know, fluffy comedy all this stuff. I can't sit down and write a sparkly, witty, funny comedy unless it's something that completely infuriates me. Are, are you writing something now? Yes, and I'm very mad. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's your new play is uh, called The, the Country, Country Club. Club. It's going down to the to Long Wharf in, in January. Or up, as the case may be. Well, up uh, and over. Yeah, uh, you Philadelphia people don't understand you. Down east. At all, that's yeah, right. Well, it could be down that way. Oh, it's, it's going up. It's go no, I meant going down in kind of a ghetto slang. Oh. Oh, I <laughs> it's going down there. <laughs> Who's involved in Castle? Who makes the decisions on casting? The playwright? The director? It's both. Uh, it's Where do you start? On a musical, it's, it's the, the authors, the director, the musical director, and the casting people. Um, and we cast, we collected our cast over a period of two and a half years because one of the ways we developed the show was uh, through a series of full cast readings. Now, I think when Paula and, and uh, Doug do a play, I, it's easier to get a group of actors together and if they're right for the parts you can almost do a cold reading and get a sense at least of mm -hmm. what you have but because Sideshow was nearly all sung even to get through it with scripts in hand re required hiring actors for a week just to learn the roles enough that they could sing it uh, and we did a series of those and then we did the workshop production and collected the cast over that period of time it's unusual to hire a cast for a week, just that, or is that becoming now? Well, standard? I think it's maybe becoming more uh, more usual. Our first reading was done by the Manhattan Theater Club, and they have a series of what they call 20-hour readings, where you can hire an actor for, you can only rehearse them for 20 hours during this week, including the performance, any one of them. You don't have to have them all together for those 20 hours, but no actor can be rehearsed more than 20 hours. Well, in the case of our leads, the Siamese twins, at that point they had something like 16 songs. So I think they gave us a little extra time. I, I shouldn't say that maybe, but uh, that was a model then that we used uh, when Manny Eisenberg came to that first reading and became involved with the show. And by the way, at that time, the title was Songs of the Siamese Twins, which I thought was just a gorgeous title. It was poetic, and, and it said musical, and it 
said it was Siamese twins, and Manny went, change that title. You know, immediately he said, this is, that's a terrible title. And well, you were about to say something about titles, too. Right, right. right. Well, I have another, I have an uh, AIDS piece called Elegies for Angels, Punks, and Raging Queens, and talk about slaughtering titles. I mean, people will ask for allergies to those raging drag queens. Uh, <laughs> and I, interestingly, I did that show in, uh, I did three productions in London. I directed it, actually. And uh, over there, uh, I remember one day, the first theater, we were standing outside, um, and these two middle-class couples came up and, and looked at the title and said, oh, that's the funniest title. It must be just a barrel of laughs. And of course, it's this piece about AIDS, which did have its humor, but uh, they just, over in England, thought that was <laughs> the funniest, you know, which I don't mind at all. But <laughs> would, would, would you, uh, this is another thing, would you, any of you, uh, the three writers, uh, ever like to direct your own work? Oh, no. Oh, no, the, 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 the beauty, the, the, the genius part of being a writer is at any moment you can get up and leave the room and <laughs> nobody freaks out. <laughs> like I could be I it could be the very first performance, first scene, I can get up and he's writing. <laughs> he's got something, don't bother. <laughs> if I if I were a director and I'd do that, people would die. People would just fall down and die. the director just left. So I think that but also you want you want someone I think you want someone there looking at it and you want to worry about the words and the and the image the images and the you don't want to have to worry about <laughs> Becky you Sue's cup of coffee, call. you know, where does that go? Um. <laughs> I don't know, I could just listen to Doug. You know? <laughs> um, Irene Fournette says that, that playwrights should direct their own work. She's yeah, very, Edward, yeah, and it's very staunch about that, whereas I think that that's a confusion uh, for me of what the collaborative process is. To me, you want other visions other than yourself. You don't want your own. You agree with that, yeah. Well, yes yes and no. I, I do some directing of other people's work, and right. um, I don't necessarily like to direct my own stuff, but in the case of Elegies, which uh, is, has the structure sort of, of Spoon River Anthology, it's, it's uh, written in free verse monologues interspersed with songs. And when I started doing the initial readings of that, it was just convenient for me to direct it. And as I directed it, it was an incredible experience. I, I, working with actors on it, I'd go, that's there? I wrote that there? I, I, I found all of this stuff that I just wasn't conscious of as a writer that was in the poems that I discovered as a director right, with actors. Right. And um, because that was such a personal piece and, and written in verse, it was, I felt very much about my rhythms. And I really enjoyed doing it, so I did continue to ask when it was produced in London that I direct. And of course, a lot of people say, no, that's the worst idea, an author directing his own work. But they let me get away with it. And uh, I, I actually, it's an interesting thing about that, though, because I've directed my own work. Uh -huh. And I think that I, there can be a, a tendency to correct the problems of the script directorially. Mm. Well, that's true. Which means as long as you're directing it, it's fine, but if someone who doesn't know you across the country picks it up, they don't know what's in your mind. And um, I, I really actually have a problem sometimes with doing cold stage readings with wonderful directors and actors because they make my script look too good. And I can't see where the problems are. They fix it through their interpretation. I'm actually a believer of getting friends who are not actors, and like playwrights particularly, around a table, people who cannot act, 
to read the first reading, and then I see what works and doesn't. What do you do? You record it and play it over? (laughs) (laughs) Get me the finest actor in the industry. Because if there's a flaw there, then you know. I mean, like, if she can't make it work, she's a genius. I'm sure community theaters will do my plays, and they'll be lovely, but I'm not going. See, that's the other thing. I come from the community theater. Oh, I do too. I come from the community theater. I I believe that if you can do a play on $100, you can do it on a budget of $300,000. And that you have to start with $100. I believe in towards a poor theater. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I think that at the process of rehearsal, right, the directors uh, and the actors are going to show you every flaw in the rehearsal process. Sure. But... uh, if you're directing that process, this is just for me, I worry, I want to have a script that an 18-year-old with a full heart can deliver and make meaningful in a town of 5,000 people in, in Iowa. I, I think if it can work in community theater, if it can work with people like me who can't act their way out of a paper bag, then you've got a script that quote-unquote is universal. But I find when I'm directing uh, my own work, well, with elegies, that I often would working on it with an actor go who wrote this you know this right. is terrible <laughs> you know, you're harder on the playwright right because the, uh, the we gotta fix yeah. this for you because yeah. it's not working for you as an actor so right. it was interesting but I, it's not something that i aspire to do all the time by any means I mark what's your take on that well i think there's some authors who do it very well i think that to me it's part of the reason for doing theater is because it's fun you know it's fun to be in the room with paul it's fun to be in the room with doug it's fun to be in the room with all those actors and i just think it's it's just one less person to have fun with um and it's just a a fewer ideas in the room also i think that uh you know part of the joy of it is when something isn't working or or isn't going well is figuring out is it because the production isn't working or is it because there's a textual problem and i think that it's um it's just one less eye um, and I just think you're maybe potentially biased in a certain way that you, sure. you know, where if it's because uh, uh, you also wrote it. Um, but I think it works either way. The, the thing that you're saying about that is to go back to, and we're not going to talk about the moment that I, I enjoyed fighting with you every moment. We always fought the good fight, and I would go and leave a fight or a discussion feeling really very uplifted. Do you know what I mean? That that's when you know you got a good collaboration when you have really good fights, and um. <laughs> And I said something to you, and I saw your eyes cross, and I thought, oh, man, he thinks I'm crazy. <laughs> but um, it's like really wonderful, finely woven rugs where you deliberately put in flaws in the making of the rug, that you deliberately put in problems that aren't neat and tidy, and they have no solution, and I have no idea how to do it. And a couple of times I turned to you and I said, I have no hi- idea how you're going to do that, but that's your problem. Because it seems to me that scripts with huge problems become the problem plays of Shakespeare, or become the problem plays of Albee, or become the pro- you know what I mean? It's the problems that directors, to me, get jazzed about and go, how the heck would you do that? Oh yeah, we're going to have an angel crash through the ceiling. How the heck would you do that? And how do you do it on a hundred bucks? That's where, to me, it's like, all right, I want an elephant at the end of the play. Now, obviously, you have to choose your problems wisely, you never get produced. But I think that this, this play, I, I think it's a miracle that I listened to you and I went, this is it. Because when I wrote the play, I went, who the heck is going to be able to do this? There's so many problems. I feel like it's a minefield. And it would be so easy to derail. And you didn't. You know, you just didn't. Because I think you're amazing at problem solving. And to me, a good playwright p- 
poses problems and questions and doesn't answer it. Let everybody else take care of it. And you said you've written 22 plays. Yeah, a lot of problems. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go back to uh, Ingrid uh, as a director. Did you change your, your direction in England? Uh, was it different? Did the pace of it change? Emphasis? Uh, it, was a, it was different. It, the British sense of humor is, is so mysterious to me. And uh, <laughs> Elegies is, a, is an AIDS piece, and it's, of course, very serious, but it had a lot of humor in it, that I, and I was really a whore for the laughs because I just thought they were so essential. And one night, the audience would scream and yell and applaud and laugh and then the next night to all uh, evidence it seemed like exactly the same performance sit stone-faced through the whole show not a titter and then at the end just erupt into applause so that question of how to fine-tune the humor was uh, was paramount there there was some tinkering with language because things don't mean exactly the same or certain words um, and um, but I think acting, good acting is good acting, and, and British actors have a different kind of training. They're more adept with language, I think. Um, in, in America, the emphasis is more on musical theater. I think when you're going through high school and college, there's a lot more opportunity to do Oklahoma, and over there, there's a lot more opportunity to do Shakespeare. They yeah, have a couple of those playwrights on their side. Yeah, right, right. You know, speaking of all that, Bill, and also because you're a lyricist, I'd like to also go back a minute and tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, are you a poet? Do you, do you, have, do you write poems? I uh, do, I, and I've written poems uh, from the time I was in high school. I, I grew up in South Dakota, the Black Hills of South Dakota, near Mount Rushmore, and my family were ranchers. Everybody called my father cowboy because he was a cowboy. And where I got this uh, theater bug, I just, I have no idea, but I can remember in kindergarten, they were gonna do Goldilocks and the Three Bears, and I thought, if I don't get to play Papa Bear, I will die. At that point, I didn't realize I probably wanted to play Goldilocks, but that was another issue. <laughs> well, it was the lead, you know. This is all the good scenes. Right. And the best costumes, exactly. too. Right. Um, and, I, and I also remember in sixth grade, the teacher went around the room and asked us what we wanted to be when we grew up, and I said, a playwright. And Everybody turned around and said, what's that? I mean, it was just, there isn't a lot of theater in South Dakota, really. And uh, my mother was very encouraging. She was a teacher, and she read to me a lot, and she loved movies. And uh, I guess I showed some musical aptitude, so she, you know, uh, signed me up for piano lessons and, and at an early age. Um, but I have written poetry and continue to. Where did you go from kindergarten? How? Keep going. Well, I... Uh, I went to college for two years, uh, a small college in Sioux City, Iowa, called Morningside College. And during the summers, I worked at a resort in New Jersey uh, where you were hired as a waiter or whatever, but they did staff shows, and I directed shows. And that's where I met um, the composer who I first wrote a musical with and um, continue to work with to this day, Janet Hood is her name. She wrote the score for Elegies. She was at Oberlin, and uh, I was very inspired by hair, which, you know, is sort of the wrong thing to say, I think, because people don't look on that so 
uh, well now, but it, it was such an exciting. I like it. I know. I love the music. I love. So did I. I, I. Well, great. You know, I. Uh, this side of the. I. I agree. You one curtain. It was a. Could be better. I just loved hair, but I thought maybe it would be possible to do something with that kind of music, with rock music, which really inspired me. That had a real book, a real story, which the show didn't have as much as the <coughs> film of hair did, and. Um, we wrote a musical by mail entirely. Uh, she was at Oberlin. I went then to the University of Kansas with uh, Mandy Patinkin was there, and Don Johnson ran away with one of the married female professors just as I was getting there. There's <laughs> <laughs> a lot of good dirt on this show. Really? really? <laughs> and uh, we, we wrote this whole musical by mail, and one of my professors from the first college had transferred to KU to do graduate work, and he had a directing slot in their theater season, and he said, if I, I told him I was writing this musical, he said, I will do it if you finish it, which was just great incentive, and uh, so I, that's basically why I went back to school. I was sort of over it at that point, like, like you were, but uh, I went back to get this show on, and uh, we did it there, and then it won a national contest uh, from BMI. They, mm -hmm. at the time, sponsored a a contest for original musicals produced in colleges. And that was sort of where it came is from. There, is there a course, is there uh, a college for lyricists? How do you learn lyricists? Hmm? I you just did it by, by doing it. There's a graduate program at NYU, NYU, NYU for right. musical theater, which is really mm -hmm. good. And of yep. course, there's the BMI and F. Go Owls, go! <laughs> and there's the BMI and ASCAP workshops, yes. of course. Uh -huh. But I sort of went, I took a detour into pop music, because I was always interested in, in, and still am, in where contemporary or popular music meets the musical theater. And uh, I worked with this composer, Janet Hood. Um, we put together she had another friend from Oberlin that became a duo, two singers called Jade and Sasparilla, and I wrote their lyrics and managed them. And so it was sort of trial by fire, you know, writing specifically for those performers who were working every night. And mm -hmm. that was a great experience, a great way to learn to write lyrics. What I'm hearing, we, we've done this in, in other seminars too, and I'd like to sort of throw this one out, and what I'm hearing from you, Bill, too, is the influence of a parent on a, a development of a, a, of a talent. Uh, would I like to have any, anybody else talk about that? Actually, I had a, a really phenomenal experience with that. Um, my father uh, brought me up on musicals, mm -hmm. and uh, I, I loved musicals. Um, and he left home when I was 10, and I didn't see him for maybe 25 years. And he came back to help care for my brother when he was dying of AIDS. So we spent a lot of time talking to each other. And one night, while we were drinking cognac, he said, Paula, do you like the American musical? And I said, Dad, I love the American musical. He said, good, because only through the American musical can we understand Bertolt Brecht in this country. And I had this shock, because that's what I lecture at Brown University. Mm. And I said, how old was I when you said that? I mean, it, it was this, this voice of... Uh, of recognition. Yeah, I think that parental thing is very, very important. But I also think, and I, I'll bet you there's another thing that's in common, and I'll bet every theater artist will say this, there's also the search for an alternative family structure, right. of a place to belong, right. of feeling like an outsider, mm -hmm. 
whether it's in Maryland or South Dakota or whatever, that when you get into the rehearsal hall, it could be in high school or it can be Goldilocks, you go, I'm home now. Right. And how do you stay in the room and stay with people that feel more family to you than family? Well, most people's uh, parents don't know anything about Bertolt Brecht. What was your father's occupation? My father never uh, got out of high school. He was 15 years old. One of the things that I very much feel um, and my mother never got out of high school, and uh, she was a secretary, um, is a respect for the incredible intelligence of the working class. Um, and uh, that intellectualism has nothing to do with class or university education. Right. Right. I very... No, oh! Absolutely, a very similar uh, background, but not nearly as... Uh, dramatic um, was that uh, my folks just took me to the theater a lot. There was a wonderful system that has pretty much gone away in the summers, which was called summer stock. And you would go, and there'd be a barn in just about every, <laughs> and you'd go yeah. into this barn, and you would see New York actors do the creakiest of plays. Yeah. But it was so much fun, and it was ex it was exciting, and it was live, and it was dangerous. And I just remember as a kid just going to that and just being. So, part of it was I was so afraid for the actors that at any moment they were just going to fall off the stage or, <laughs> or not say the line right and everything would do, I just, or a murder mystery, someone would just say, I can't stand it, it's the, it, is, it is the butler. You know, I just, I was so, it's too good, it's, I can't keep, I was so excited by it and I, I loved it and my parents knew it and, and let it happen and nurtured it and when I did some very controversial things, like not go to college, but just get on a bus and go to New York, they were there, and they just said, that's okay. And when it was 10 years of people going, what is your son doing? <laughs> did you have siblings? Have I have two sisters that both teachers. I'm you now, because we're almost up to the end of what you are doing. But we have to take a break here, and it will only be a minute. So you can stand up and stretch and turn around and get right back to your seats again. And we're going to continue this seminar. And I want to go around some more and see what we're talking about. Influence. This is CUNY TV, the City University of New York. And these are coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. This seminar is on the playwright, director, and lyricist. How they work alone and how they work together. And when we were went off before we talked about the influences of the family on the careers. And I think, Mark, we did not get to you, but I think we would like to. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, I grew up on a farm in Illinois. I never saw a play, a professional play, until I was 18 when the acting company passed through the University of Illinois, where I was uh, studying to be a short story writer. Um, but, uh, you know, I think uh, my family uh, was a musical family, but there was no one, uh, I don't know where it came from. You know where the Mickey Rooney, Judy Garland syndrome came from. <laughs> um, but uh, I was always, always knew I wanted to be a director, and I was the one who, uh, you know, was the cliche putting on the plays with the cousins at Christmas. 
you know, dragging them into the back room to rehearse. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, wrote plays and put them on in uh, junior high. And then decided I thought I would be a short story writer instead for a very brief time until I discovered I wasn't very good at it. Uh, and then uh, kept on directing all the way through. And um, my family was always very supportive. I don't think they ever really understood or necessarily know what a director does. I keep trying to explain it to them. Um, but uh, uh, and then I went to graduate school, studied Where? directing at Yale. Uh -huh. What does a director do? <laughs> you open I was that afraid up. I knew that was a mistake. Yeah, yeah. As soon as I said <laughs> that, I think that would be very good. What does a director do? Um, I think that they are uh, they uh, create the world, um, bring everybody together, and help them collaborate. Kind of serve as the center, uh, center in. Um, in helping everybody get along and helping them all uh, be on the same page and make sure that uh, we're creating a world and that everybody knows the rules of that world and that each, each world is unique and each play is unique and kind of being, bringing everybody together and um, serving as uh, the, the center of that. Not the center in terms of uh, uh, in any kind of uh, um, power kind of way, but just the center in terms of making sure that everybody is collaborating and that everybody is on the same page. I suppose that it happens with a group of actors that you've chosen uh, that one of them simply can't get with that, with the sense of ensemble, uh, and, and you just have to let them go. That's a tough day. Yes, that is. I've, I've never actually been in that circumstance, but mm -hmm. I think that... Um, one it, reads about it, it happens. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, once again, it's, uh, you know, I think that it's necessary if it reaches that point, because I think what's important is the work is important, uh, mm -hmm. and the single person in the work is not, not the most important, and at least that's my point of view. Uh, and you just say, I'm sorry, I guess. Has that ever happened with, with Bill? Oh, yes, no. definitely. It yeah. happened even in Sideshow. Uh, uh, with the Broadway company, we did have to replace someone early on in rehearsals. It just wasn't working mm -hmm. out. And um, it's always difficult, but I'm glad we did it. Yeah. Is that your job to do that? No, thank, thank heaven. No, it's not. That's <laughs> the director's job. You know, there's another thing we were talking about of, of the evolution of these plays. Did uh, any of the plays, I know uh, Sideshow was workshopped, and, and I guess uh, Bees were in, in Portland. Did they all go out of town? We talked about this uh, also on the, on, on the seminars, about the advantage of going away, because then you're not uh, conflicted by having to, uh, I mean, people become a family, a world, much better out of town. Would you all agree with that or not, um, I, rather than workshopping it right in town on the same stage or something? I think it's a different kind of pressure. I think that there's a different kind of freedom, maybe, when you're up in Portland, Maine, and you know there's a production coming up in, in four weeks. But I think that, you know, that, that sense of family you can create anywhere. You can create it, you know, downtown in the studio at NYU, or you can create it at Actors Theatre Louisville, or down at the Vineyard. Um, so I don't think that, I think it's more the, the pressure. I think that you can create a family anywhere. It's more when you have, it depends on how close the production's breathing down your, your neck, regardless of where you are. Would you agree with his interpretation of what the director does? Absolutely. I think he's, he's the daddy, you know? If you look, if, 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 if a production's the, f I mean, the, the writer is like the, the peculiar uncle or aunt, and who <laughs> kind of comes in and kind of shows everybody a good, you know, and, and but actually the, the playwright is the mother and, the, and the, 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 the director's the daddy, I think. It's how it works for me. I think I'm, I'm there like, you know, and it's gotta be that. We've been told from time to time here that a playwright is so close to the play. 
that leaves out very important things that a director can bring out by probing questions. And why didn't you tell us that Aunt Mary had a lisp? You know, that's important. <laughs> well, everybody knows she has it, you know. <laughs> but I didn't. Yeah. Uh, and in that, well, is that part of what you mean by getting it all out? Or were you thinking of just making sure everybody knew what they were doing? I think it's just, it's part of making sure everybody understands the same thing that uh, yeah. everybody's idea of who Aunt Mary is is right. the same, so that you don't discover later on that people are in different chapters. Mm -hmm. Is it accidentally, you suppose, that we now, with several plays, uh, the actors are having to play multiple roles. Of course, in the case of the sideshow, it's actually two people, <laughs> but uh, Jekyll and Hyde, he has to play two, uh, two people. Your heroine, uh, mm -hmm. Jeannie, is playing two very different people yeah. in one. And then there you are with uh, how many roles do you do your acting? Oh, golly, I don't know. It's perfectly 20 wonderful. Roles, yeah. And part of the fun yeah. for the audience yes. is saying, now what? Now what? <laughs> she, yeah. She's the grandmother. And, and uh, is, is, I wonder if that's accidental, the sense of the multiplicity just, of roles. I, I, for me, it's about I just really love actors a lot. I just, when an actor's talking on a stage, I'm one happy boy. Yeah. And, and I, the idea that you want to be able to, in this, I wanted to write lots of people who would come and go very quickly. The idea of writing a part that would be very small and have someone backstage suck on a pack of luckies, bringing the energy down. I only got one scene. Was, um, you know, um, and the, but the idea of an actor, you know, impenetrability of disguise goes a long way with me. I'm like, you know, I love it. I just, I, I love the, the, uh, the facility uh, that actors have. I love when people just turn and suddenly they're another person. Mm -hmm. It's exhilarating for me. Right. I love it. And that's what, that's why I chose to do it with this play. And, uh, mm -hmm. and I don't, my next two plays, I'm not doing it. It just, and it happens to be that, that Paula's play has, has the same kind of thing with it, with lots of actors doing lots of parts. Right. I just happen to like that at this point. how do the actors feel about that? They all be having a great time. I think they have yeah, a great I time. I also think, it. though, for me, there's a different reason. I think that uh, women writers and writers of color have to, when they're writing plays, think about the economics. Mm -hmm. And that is the only way we get a shot is suddenly a play drops out of a season in Seattle or ACT and they spent all of their money on the first flashy show of the season and they're at a deficit. And they go, quick, find me a three-character play. <laughs> What's cheap to do? Oh, look, Baltimore Waltz, three characters. Oh, look, every Desdemona, three characters. Um, and it's how to get the biggest bang for the buck because one of the things is I don't think that we... Um, really explore the magnificent talents that actors have enough and that by transformational acting does that mm -hmm. but two the only way we're going to break in in a season is if we're cheap to do i'm mm -hmm. sorry to be saying that but I, I i would love to have a larger canvas and that's one of the reasons i am writing screenplays and one of the reasons i'm turning to musicals but i it, you know i once i just wrote a uh, an op-ed piece uh about <laughs> lieutenant flynn where i pointed out that there's only been one woman put in charge of a million dollar piece of equipment and there's only one woman, usually, uh, per season, that's allowed on Broadway. And I think that there's an economic issue here. The classic example of not understanding the economics of theater was Wally Shawn when he wrote his first play. <laughs> and he didn't realize about the economics of it and paying anybody. So he had 100 characters in his first right. play. Right. Yeah, right. That required some right. pruning. Yeah. Well, as, as a white man, <laughs> allow me to say it's the same. I mean, you know, six actors, one set is what you get to play with. Uh, that is the language of theater now, just because of the rules of what you must pay people and all that stuff. You just, that's the way it is. And that's fine. The poverty enriches us. I, exactly. It's the, it's, 
It's the negatives turn out always turn out to be your the biggest positives, plus. Yeah, it's yeah. the weird how it works. But the one thing, like, oh, we don't have any money, so we're just going to do it with one set and some chairs, and that's what's exciting. Yeah. We don't have money. You know, it's a story about a beautiful dress, but we don't have money for the dress, so we'll just pretend she's wearing a dress. Suddenly, the audience creates this beautiful dress in their minds, and everyone's just like, "God, you didn't put a dress on that stage." It is. It's always that stuff that makes theater great. I'm always conscious mm -hmm. of economics uh, when I'm writing it. Actually, the show Elegies had 30 characters, and I intended it for to do it with a small cast, five or six people, with each of them playing five or six roles. And I did a couple of readings that way, and then. Um, this downtown theater company called Tweed, uh, they do a, a festival of new works every year, and they owed a lot of actors favors. And they said, how about casting one actor in each role, which meant a cast of, with the singers of 34, 35. And I said, ah, oh, I can't imagine. I mean, just organizing, you know, five of them. But uh, I thought, when am I ever going to get to work with that si on that size of scale? And so... I dove off the cliff, and now I won't do it any other way. Right. And uh, it has limited the show because uh, a piece about AIDS with a cast of 35 is not on its face the most commercial experience. So we've done it as benefits. We've done mm -hmm. it uh, both in New York and, and England where the actors were basically donating their time to the cause and were happy to do it. And it turned out to be just a wonderful experience because of that. Well, it's like there's a whole new life now for Stephen Sondheim musicals because we're now rediscovering the kind of concert or stripped-down Sondheim. Right. Mm. And we're recognizing that there's a whole other dimension to his work, I think. I'm all for economics in, in the theater and, and anything that could take off this $10 million cost of bringing in a musical. But on the other hand, do you want to be bound by how much it's going to cost for your, the talent? I'm not talking about the sets and the creativeness of it that goes into it, but only six people instead of the eight that you right. need or the nine when you're writing the play and directing it. The six actors are J. Smith Cameron, Cynthia Nixon, Mark Nelson, Josh Hamilton, any of them. If they're really, right. if, if right. they're Mary Louise Parker, right. she's worth five. <laughs> you know, I mean, That's right. She's I'll worth take. ten. I mean, yeah. if it is those yeah. actors, that's it. That's all you need. I, and I'm not going to feel, I mean, uh, as, as Bees was, was put together as a, as from a collective of artists. And we did that show very cheap. That was like, I think there was $15,000 to put that show on. I mean, literally, Mark's shirt was on in the first scene. I had a, I had a pair of shoes that are on in the third scene. It's your wardrobe up on stage. Yeah, so I, I got it back, though. He got it back when we moved. When we moved off Broadway, he got a new shirt. <laughs> so, but, I mean, that that's... The stuff is like you just yeah. you put it up, yeah. you, you, and that's like the before we get to the exciting question and answer repartee section. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the the the, um, the I just want to say that that if I had any advice to give anyone who goes who's going into the theater at all is like just just put it together and do it. Don't sit around and wait to be hired. Don't send don't send you know don't be sending your plays out to everybody and just sitting waiting. Oh, I hope. If you're a playwright, find actors, find a director, get it on. If you're an actor, find a play you love, find other actors, talk about it, do it. Don't sit around. And so many people have, are in this mentality of wanting to be hired. It ain't going to happen. Right. You, have to, you have to put it on. That, that's my advice. <laughs>
Oh, thank you very much. We have some more questions here now for you to answer. Won't you come on, please? My name is David Menken. I'm an actor studying at New York University. Um, my question is directed to Douglas and Paula. Um, the interaction between playwright and director is very important. You discussed that earlier. Can the same be said between um, playwright and actor? I feel that's not my place. Um, there are playwrights who feel that they should be talking to the actor. I make a point of being uh, supportive and nurturing to actors, but I would no sooner give a note to an actor or tell them what to do. That's the, that, that's the director's place. I disagree. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I think that a playwright belongs in the room. Oh, yeah. I think that a playwright belongs uh, in the room to open yourself up as a resource, not to give notes, not to make decisions that the director is making, not to do acting you know, advice, but simply to be there to ask questions or to open oneself up as a resource which the actor and director can choose to use or not. I think we're in agreement. I, I just think in terms of like performance, I, I don't Do give notes. Mark? I think we're saying the same thing. Yeah, mm -hmm. Could you get into this? What's your answer? Um, I think they were saying the same thing, actually. Rats. Uh, yeah. Uh, she wants to be contrary uh, so much. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, we're supposed to mud wrestle. No, uh, yeah. I, I actually agree with both of them. I think that, uh, you know, for me, I want the writer there uh, as much as possible because they are, uh, they know it. Uh, there are lots of things they have inside them that I don't know because we're not mind readers. And so I'm glad to have them there. I'm glad to have their the input. Next question. Hello, my name is Karen Chilton. I'm an actor and playwright. My question is for Doug and Paula. Can you comment on the play selection, uh, the play submission process, Sub submitting your plays to theaters, selecting those theaters, getting feedback from dramaturgs, and what you do with that feedback when you get it? I'm going to launch into real quick an XYZ letter conversation that I talk about to my playwrights and my students, which is you should submit your work to theaters that are doing the work that you love. Mm -hmm. Do that research, submit to them. And when someone sends you a letter, lick your finger and run it over the ink. And if it, uh, the ink runs and an actual human person signed that letter, it actually means someone read your play, it wasn't rejected in the first cut, it was read by two readers, and they're encouraging you. They're not rejecting you. Write a note back to that person by name and thank them. And within five years, that person will be opening the door and mentoring you and helping you form your career. Thank you. Very strong. Uh, my name is Anne Hamada, and I'm from the O'Neill Center. This question is for the whole panel, but especially Paula Vogel. Uh, who are your literary influences? John Guare, Carol Churchill, Maria Irene Fornes are, are the three that I call my gods. That's a pretty good trio. Pretty great trio. Yeah. For me, it would be uh, uh, Chekhov, Kaufman and Hart, and um, somebody contemporary, Nikki Silver. Bill, <laughs> 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 you want to pick that up? Too? Well, for me as a lyricist, uh, I grew up with Rodgers and Hammerstein, and then I sort of rebelled against them because I was into rock music and the Beatles. And so uh, a lot of my influence as a lyricist comes from Joni Mitchell, um, the Beatles, uh, Paul Simon. I mean, people that influenced me musically when I was growing up. Um, in the theater, I was very influenced by Edward Albee, who doesn't write musicals for the most part, but um, the playwright part of me was definitely very influenced by him. And, and later on, Shakespeare. Uh, just Mark. Awesome. Uh, literary influences, I would agree. Uh, Chekhov and uh, David Mamet and um, 
Sam Shepard when I was growing up in school. Thank you. Hi, I'm Jeffrey Landman, a uh, performer at NYU. My question is directed to Paula. Um, you mentioned that you are female, obviously. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Last time I checked. <laughs> Thank God you mentioned yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> My question is regarding um, how you see yourself as whether you consider yourself a playwright who happens to be female or if you see yourself as a female playwright. Um, and that question is posed often, and it's more complicated than that. Um, I think that I am a playwright. I think that there are particular challenges in terms of writing female characters in the 20th century. Uh, I think that every male character comes on stage carrying behind him the legacy of Hamlet, whereas women characters are fighting against the legacy of Linda Lohman or Gertrude or uh, the secondary roles, and that that's something that and it doesn't necessarily mean uh, by sex that one can write great female characters. To me, the greatest writers of female characters are Chekhov, Tennessee Williams, and John Guare. But as a woman, I want to be very careful to try and add to the legacy that I've been given for actresses in the future. Well, sure wrote great women, so <laughs> how do you account for that? Um, it's interesting, Shaw wrote um, great women characters and great male characters because Shaw actually, I think, is thought-driven mm -hmm. and not character-driven. So he didn't right. think about what is a woman supposed to be or what is a man supposed to be, but what is the what idea. Is the and the idea is not bound by sex for Shaw. But he, but he really wanted women to be great women. Yes. He, he was... Uh, God love him. You know, he was an extraordinary figure, and, and, and he himself didn't want really to have anything to do with them on a personal basis. <laughs> yes, he'd rather read a good book, he said. Well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Solomon. I'm a playwright and an actor, and my question is for Paula, Douglas, and Bill. How important is reflecting gay and lesbian lives or perspectives somehow in your work? Shall I jump in on this one? Why don't you uh, jump in on that one, yeah. As a gay white man, <laughs> um, I think gay sensibility is a major part of theater anyway. Uh, that, that's just, the it is, it is always been a part of theater. It has always been a voice that's heard even when we didn't know it. Um, I tend to write gay characters in my plays just because I like I'm always on the side of the outsider. I like the person who doesn't have the world handed to him. And that's why I choose to do it. It's also my voice. Uh, my next play does not have a gay character in it. Um, that's basically what I feel. I feel you, 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 it's there anyway. It is a sensibility that is in uh, most theater. Um, and I use it op openly when I choose to use it. Does that make sense? Yes, yeah, very good. It's very important to me to answer your question. I, I um, my first professionally produced show uh, was a musical called Fortune, which was <coughs> specifically a gay farce. And I, growing up in South Dakota and Wyoming, I had no role models. I knew, I felt like such a freak. I knew I was gay from a very early age. And so it's very important to me as a writer to try and give gay characters' life so that other people won't feel as out of it as I did. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm hoping, and I don't think it will happen in my particular generation, but I think my, my magnificent playwrights that I've taught 
uh, will do this. Uh, I am longing and looking forward to the day that we have a lesbian Tony Kushner uh, who can be accepted and embraced. Um, uh, there are many wonderful lesbian playwrights in this country, and we are really ghettoized. So. Hey. Thank you. Hi, my name is Javier Munoz. I'm also at NYU. And um, I have a two part question, kind of. Uh, Paula, if you could briefly talk more about the other plays that you've worked on and some of the inspirations and content of those. And for all of you, what what is the moment of satisfaction for you? What is that moment where you as an artist are satisfied in the process of your work? That's a great question, actually, about the moment of uh, satisfaction. Um, I'm writing a, a, a new play. I've been working on a new play called Mineola Twins, about good and evil twins in the Eisenhower, Nixon, and Bush-Reagan years. And um, <laughs> we're about to do a reading at the Roundabout with Joe Mantello directing and Annette Benning. And um, I've been working on that for two, three years. Um, uh, for me, my favorite, people have been asking this, uh, I've had three really magnificent experiences in the theater uh, in 25 years. One of them has been How I Learned to Drive. One of them was Baltimore Waltz, and the other was Mineola Twins in Juneau, Alaska, the opening night. Um, and for me, the moment of satisfaction and the reason that they were so wonderful um, actually comes from having loved the process more than anything I could possibly write or envision, having loved the artist I'm working with. Uh, so for me, the moment of satisfaction is that first preview, um, feeling that I perfectly belong, feeling embraced and loved, and feeling proud is to me the great moment of satisfaction. Yes. How wonderful. Hi, my name is Sarah Inbar. I'm also at NYU. I was wondering, as playwrights, when you're writing a play, do you usually have the end in mind as you go along, or do you create as you go along, and does the end surprise you? I usually have the end in mind, and it's never the ending that the play <laughs> I have you, a very generalized Characters end. tend to go. Characters just right. you start off, and you go, this is where I'm headed. And characters, you, you're taking dictation by page 10, I find. Yeah. After a while, you just Sometimes, like, yeah. who yeah. are these people? Yeah. Are they, they're talking away. Like with Sideshow, I, I knew that I felt it should end. One of the Siamese twins got married on the 50-yard line of the Cotton Bowl as the finale of the, the Texas Centennial. This, is, this really happened, and they charged admission to the wedding. And I just felt that the wedding should be the end of our show, because weddings are a traditional ending of comedies and, and of musicals. This was a very ironic wedding, but <laughs> It just seemed right to me, but how to get to that was was a big mystery. Well, I'd like to ask a question, and if you could go around with me. Since our audience is made up of a lot of students, and the majority of them are actors, performers, um, what advice would you have to give to them as they go on? How do they get an agent? How do they get to see you? What's, what, what happens with them when they start to go out looking for work? I thought Doug's advice, just do it, is uh, absolutely right on the money. You know, it, it, even if you are just getting friends together to read your play, um, it's very important. And also his experience of doing any kind of theater work he could when he came to the city, that, that's invaluable because you make connections, you make relationships that who knows when they might pay off. I worked at a box office at a theater in uh, Boston in the, in the early 70s, and the man I worked for now uh, is very important in the Jew Jamson um, theater organization and came to see Sideshow last week, and it was just such a thrill to me that that, that relationship is still most, pertinent. Most of the actors who have been in 
my plays knew me, like Mark Nelson knew me from being a doorman. And I would talk about plays with him. And as doing a bartending in the theater, that sounds like I was just so desperate to be any part of the theater, just even that far away. No, I used to be able to come into the theater early and watch the director and the playwright give notes to the actors. And I would sit there in the back and just kind of listen and learn. You just do that, and, and again, just, you just put it together and you mm -hmm. do it. Don't, don't, it, is, it is not so mystified. Within this room is the next circle and generation in the American theater. And my advice would be to remember that circles rise together. You know very talented friends that you would love to work with. Be true to each other, be generous, and believe in each other, because it's hard to sustain one's belief alone, all, all isolated. Circles will rise together. If there are people you would love to work with who are in your class, in your neighborhood, be true to them, and you will rise together. This, you are, it's hard to, to, to recognize it now, but you are the next generation. And 10 to 20 years from now, you'll, you'll say, I can't believe I used to drink beer with this person. Oh, um, yeah. They're my colleagues. Absolutely. Yeah. And because theater is collaborative, I think a large part of, of succeeding is finding the people you want to work with. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the beauty is that there is no one way to do it. Right. I think that you can talk to a hundred people how they started working and you have a hundred different ways of doing it. Yeah. And that's really the glory of it, I think, is that you find like-minded souls and just do it together. Yes. And however you do it will be the right way. That's right. Henry James said to a young writer, he said, be bold and generous and pursue the prize. And that's, <laughs> that's good great. Right. <laughs> that's great. Well, I have <laughs> and say this is coming to an end and each time our seminars have so much talent in it, and they have so much wonderful knowledge in it that I wish it would go on and on and on, but unfortunately there isn't enough time, and I thank you, the audience, but I also thank these wonderful people that share their talents and their time with the American Theatre Wing. This is just one of the many year-round programs of the Wing, and we are doing the seminars from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, which is located on 42nd Street in the heart of Times Square. And it is part of what we were saying today, that this is, New York is a wonderful campus, because there is such an opportunity to see theater. There are student tickets at almost every show, and I urge you to take advantage of it. See the theater, it's wonderful, go to it. Thank you all for being here.